Welcome to Agile Clips, where we break down Agile into manageable pieces. In this episode, Scrum trainer, podcaster, and author Ryan Ripley talks about some of the challenges Scrum teams face and offers practical advice on how to resolve them. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys, for having me. This is uh, this is great. I love getting opportunities to talk about Scrum and can't wait to see what we come up with. Great. So uh, for those who are not, uh, you know, don't know you, please uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, so I, I'm Ryan Ripley. I am a professional Scrum trainer with Scrum.org. So I spend most of my my time and the majority of my career now traveling the world teaching Scrum to uh, both individuals and organizations and uh, trying to help teams deliver a little better. I started out my career many, many years ago. I think it's almost 20 years ago now um, as a developer, came up through the project management ranks, went into people management, went down the executive track, left all that behind to become a Scrum master again, uh, became a trainer, and uh, now I am here before you and your audience, uh, hopefully saying something intelligent that they get some kind of value out of. Um, I'm also the the host of the Agile for Humans podcast, um, and I recently uh, co-wrote a book with another professional Scrum trainer named Todd Miller. We wrote Fixing Your Scrum, Practical Solutions for Common Scrum Problems, and uh, that's been out a little over a week. I think we're about to, to the second week, and uh, people seem to be really, to be really liking it. And uh, hopefully it's bringing some value to the world. Wow. Congratulations. I think that was one of the reasons why we definitely wanted to talk to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So I know the, uh, the the subject of the book is fixing your scrums, as you said. So in a nutshell, what would you say are the underlying reasons why teams have a hard time adopting scrum? <laughs> yeah, maybe not question. in a nutshell. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that, we might have to unpack that a little bit. But, you know, at the root, um, I think where a lot of teams and companies and organizations get in some trouble is where they they believe that this is just a process that IT is adopting. Right. Mm-hmm. So when they just go into this as, well, we're just going to fix IT and get them to break things down and deliver faster and we'll get more sooner. And, you know, there's a there's a book. You know, Scrum, twice the work in half the time. It's a wonderful book with a horrible title. Yeah. And uh, it gives this perception that teams just go faster. And, and and I think that mindset gets locked in. You know, Jeff wrote a great book, but the title just makes it so much more difficult for those of us actually out in the trenches trying to help companies. And um, but I think yeah. that misconception is big where they just we're just going to fix IT and the rest comes into place. And what companies don't realize is that when you change IT, you change the way that IT is going to work with the org. And then suddenly HR and finance and legal and compliance and all these different groups are getting upended and, and, and disrupted because IT is suddenly moving a little quicker or because IT is trying to get some answers sooner. or They're trying to be a more collaborative partner and they weren't ready for that. They're not staffed for that. And things tend to go a little sideways. Organizational impediments just start popping up and, and teams get overwhelmed and, and things can tend to get a little weird. Yeah, it's like the, oh, we don't do it that way kind of dialogues. Oh, absolutely. It's, well, what do you mean you need to, to have a dynamic decision made about the budget? We set the budgets annually. Like, you can't come back for more money. Or 
it, it doesn't matter if there's a huge market opportunity that we discovered through excellent product ownership. Um, yeah, we don't have any more money. Sorry. Or, you know, all those <laughs> weird things that, or, or like the, the shared services groups are another good example where, well, we only have one security team and this person's busy. So you got to come back next month. That means we can't deliver. And that means customer value gets delayed. And, and it just, it, it, there's these domino effects and cascading consequences that just keep emerging, right? That, you know, I think lead to, I, that's just one area uh, of the difficulties that I think some teams have. So uh, one other question I wanted to have was that, you know, what was the motivation for you to write? And it looks like you, you whether with the experiences that you had in the field, but um, you, you're addressing a larger issue here. So what was the motivation behind the book itself? So Todd and I, uh, we co-train a lot together. We, uh, we get a lot of time on the road together. And we were sitting around one night. We're just like, how do we move this? I mean, this is kind of like a lofty goal, but how do we kind of move the, the industry of, of, of Scrum and specifically the practice of the Scrum Master role? How do we move that forward? Like what if, if we had our, our choice, what would we do? And we start talking about all the things that we saw in the in companies or that we see or questions we get in training classes and all the stuff that just really the stuff we see over and over and over again. And we decided, you know, what if we put that in a book, but not just an anti-pattern book, because a catalog of anti-patterns is interesting. But yeah. then what if we looked at every anti-pattern that we've run into, every problem that we, we see with teams, every organizational dysfunction, every question we get in a class? What if we put all that together and said, you know what? We're the consultant. We are, every time we walk into a company and we see this thing that we've captured, here's exactly what we try to do. Here's every question we ask. Here's the liberating structure that we use to gain more insight. Here's a facilitation technique that we've tried. Here's a new retrospective format for specifically when this thing is happening. So mm. basically, we took the anti-patterns and then put ourselves in the role of the scrum coach and said, how do we just give the playbook away? And it's not even really a playbook. It's just how do we how do we teach others to to discover the root of these issues and solve them just as we would and it's kind of funny. Some of our colleagues actually reached out. They saw us, we shared some some pre-release copies, and one of them was actually legitimately angry with us. And he's like, "Guys, I make the bulk of my income off of these consulting trips where we're solving <laughs> these problems." And and you know, if people and he was dead on serious. We thought he was joking. We kind of laughed, and when he looked angry, we stopped laughing. And he's like, "Guys." people are going to read this. They're going to try these things out. Like the problems that we, that we're going to get are just going to be harder. And for Todd and I, that was the point. What if we could go into these organizations and see these more difficult, challenging product-based problems and not the same scrum based issue that, or the same organizational impediment issues that we see over and over and over again. So can you give us a couple, three examples yeah, a couple, three examples. I, you know what? The, there's a few like that. I, if we're not careful, guys, we're going to be here for four hours as I stand up on the soapbox and refuse to get down. But um, a daily scrum is one that just really gets Todd and I both going, right? You know, a, a daily scrum is supposed to be this amazing opportunity for a dev team to collaborate and self-organize and figure out how they're going to have the best shot of making progress towards their sprint goal over the next 24 hours. You know, it's a great way to get synchronized on the sprint backlog, to update any work on that sprint backlog, to make sure that progress is transparent, that the current plan is transparent, 
And then everyone knows like, okay, we're going to pair up in the morning and we're going to figure out this test. And then in the afternoon, we're going to swarm and we're going to do all these things or, hey, this, this one piece of work is getting kind of behind. The item aging numbers aren't looking good. Let's tackle that in the morning. And like, they're just making this battle plan for the day to make progress. And it's a really beautiful thing to watch when it's well facilitated, when it's well executed. It's just this great self-organization example that, that teams really, they need to have. And far too often, it turns into a status meeting. You know, some teams take a very legalistic view of Scrum where they're like, well, we have to answer, we have to ask the three questions because there was in the Scrum guide. So, all right, yeah. Bobby, what did you do? T- what did you do yesterday? What are you going to do today? And what are you blocked? And all right, Jill, what are you going to do? Or what did you do yesterday? And they take this legalistic view when you can go find videos on YouTube where, where Ken Schwaber has yeah. said flat out it was guidance. Right. And so we see this event destroyed because of this legalistic view, this mechanical interpretation, this really valueless um, practice that it's and that's heartbreaking because the daily scrum is this wonderful event where you can see just some beautiful self-organization at play if it's done well. And oh, I mean, this is that's one of the big ones for us. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, somebody had mentioned that it's like a uh, stand up is a 24 hour planning meeting. So then it changes the meaning of it and then it doesn't become and then you know people will say how can can, can you do it in 15 minutes <laughs> i was like well if you are looking only for 24 hours yeah you can do it in 15 minutes well it, so that's the interesting part if you look at it as a mechanical event you probably can't do it in 15 minutes but if you bring the scrum values into play which the scrum values are sorely lacking in so many scrum implementations that todd and i have seen and if you think about the values, if you think about focus being the first value, right? This the focus of the of this of the daily scrum is on that sprint goal. And if we're only focused on progress towards that sprint goal and how we're going to work together to make better progress or to help achieve that sprint goal, suddenly 15 minutes looks looks reasonable. Now, if we're open to the fact that you know we are here to self-organize, that we're here to make progress for the sprint goal, we're here to make progress for our on that on that on that work transparent for the product owner. Like if we're open to that, that that's one of our accountabilities. Then I think we have a, a good shot. If we have the courage to call people out when we've gotten off track, and the commitment to bring us back to that focus, and if we do that respectfully right? We bring all the values into play. Suddenly we have this very rich, interesting event. And I think that that's another one of those things that's often missing where teams haven't really thought through how the scrum values actually influence behavior, which influences the outcomes of these events and of our work. Makes total sense. You know, what really drives me nuts is when I see a team sticking to those rules of what did you do in the last 24 hours? And someone says, well, I went and saw a doctor for two hours. <laughs> it's just, okay, focus on the work, not on the person. Yeah. It, and it's amazing. And just calling it out like that, very simply, very respectfully, that helps us keep the time box, which is, I mean, look, time boxes are creative constraints. And we need those creative constraints in Scrum. We need to know that time is limited and that and that time is precious and focus is valuable. And, and you know, during that time, we're going to creatively solve a problem with the the minimal but sufficient means to do so. And those time boxes really make that real for us. And if we start violating those time boxes and not really you know, respecting the focus of these events, you know, so many things in Scrum go off the rails and, uh, you know, life is complex enough. I mean, let's let's follow a simple framework and not add more complexity, right? Definitely. 
So earlier you alluded really to the dependencies between teams or even different parts of the organization. So how do you address those? I'm, I'm sure it depends on the organization, but that's that's a big problem when people are impeded. Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, we really need to bring transparency to the situation. I, I think it's it, you'd be surprised how many times that a, a security team wasn't aware that there's a sprint going on somewhere in the organization that really had some serious uh, critical items to review until it's way too late or or that um, you know finance really needed to be involved in this decision earlier or sooner than later. And so I think with, with these dependencies, a, a good scrum master, all right, I think a, comp- a professional scrum master will make these dependencies or help work with, with teams to make these dependencies visible. Right, work with the product owner, work with the dev team, see where the boundaries are overlapping between teams, see where we need help, see who could be involved. And I think teams would then decide to start inviting those groups to sprint planning and sprint review. I think that step alone, those two steps, right, make those transparent, make the dependencies as transparent as possible, and then commit to the idea that, you know what, let's bring security into sprint planning to show them what we could potentially deliver by the end of a sprint so that they know what they could possibly need to review. And maybe they'll partner with us sooner and maybe we'll get that done a little faster. But if we can add those group, those people to planning and review, you know, context is king. And I can't like give a, a prescriptive answer here, but getting people involved ahead of time in planning and then bringing them into the sprint review so that they can see what's coming up, you know, what's the roadmap, what's the horizon look like. I think those are two great steps. Um, yeah, I think it's like, you know, uh, what we talk about when we are coaching is a, uh, a no handoff concept or mindset so that if you hand it off to somebody, then you're going to wait. So if you pull them in into the meeting or into the team and make the part of that, then the, your if the handoffs are gone or minimized, you will get a lot more cohesive uh, teams and uh, get the things done a lot more effectively or in a, in a uh, right time frame that you're looking for. But I agree with you in the sense that sensing that is almost like a periscope. You need to look at what's coming attractions, sir, so that you can head them off sooner. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that level of transparency is 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 very apparent in mature organizations and in organizations who have professional scrum masters out in the organization working and mentoring and training and making sure that everyone's aware of how scrum is going to impact the way we, the way we work and the need to be more involved sooner and, and, and all those great things. I think you're going to hear a trend, especially in this discussion, and you'll probably read a trend or you've probably read a trend in the, in the book that we put a lot of the weight of these, of these impediments and of these anti-patterns on, on the scrum master. Yeah, I think we even go as far as to say that most of the anti-patterns in the book are happening because of a scrum master who's not doing their job because apathy is set in. They've given up on, on sorting through these organizational impediments. And, and some scrum masters are not a fan of that message, but we really believe that, that the scrum master is just pivotal in making sure that, you know, in, in, the, in the case of the last question, that dependencies are transparent. We're not saying the scrum master has to do that work, but can they ask the question of the product owner, you know, hey, have we actually considered the security implications and has a security professional joined us from the from the group to to see what's going on? And that simple question can save months of, of heartache, delays in delivery. I mean, it's I know one thing that comes to my mind is like those type of questions are 
you know, totally agnostic of which business or which team or where you are. Those are absolutely essential that any Scrum Master has to ask. Doesn't matter which environment they are in. You know, it's interesting. People think the, that the role of the Scrum Master is to, well, you, you'll, you'll lead the daily Scrum, you facilitate the events, you, you order lunch, you schedule the meetings. You know. I really think as a Scrum Master, we're doing a few things, but we're expected to do them very, very well. And one of them is make things transparent, you know, reveal things. I think another one is uh, create situations and boundaries and structures and constraints that get people to talk more often. You know, we're trying to provoke conversation. We're provoking discovery. We're, we're encouraging experimentation. But, but we're doing all these things to bring, to bring information forward, to bring data to the forefront of our decision making, to help people make new and better decisions over and over and over again. And when Scrum Masters forget, forget about that, they become more mechanical. Right. When the values are not present, when they decide that they'd rather be an admin than a scrum master, then these anti patterns start flourishing because so many of these items that are that we're supposed to bring transparency to get lost. And then suddenly problems emerge. And and it's just a, it's a it's a nasty cycle that uh, I think scrum masters are at the forefront of, of trying to prevent. And I would think also instilling the the scrum values, which are obviously so important to you and you're advocating need to be used all the time and in every context. But if they're fundamentally not there, how? what advice would you have for a Scrum Master to help teams, organizations, and managers in particular, I'm thinking of, really uh, follow those values? Yeah, I, I think it starts with awareness. You know, the Scrum values were brought back into the Scrum Guide, I think, three revisions ago. So if you took your, your PSM or your CSM class, you know, back in, you know, the early 2000s, or uh, you you may not have even been exposed to those ideas. And so I think we need to just check in and say, all right, who can actually name the values? And, and, and can we as a team discuss how those impact behavior? Um, I think that's first and foremost. I think a, a very close second, or maybe even a better idea first is the Scrum Master needs to be living those values openly, right? And and really calling out when those values are, are shown by the team and really amplifying those impacts and bringing them to the forefront I also think there's some very good uh, retrospective formats that involve the values that we talk about in the book that, you know, let's let's retrospect on how these values are influencing our behavior or are we seeing behaviors on our on our scrum team that are antithetical to the values and, and perhaps our our misunderstanding of the values is why those are, are why the it's why the behaviors are, are showing up. And so I, I think there's ways generate awareness, you know, have those discussions, do some training, run some retros around the values. And really try to, to make sure that the team understands that Scrum is not a mechanical process. It's a framework where the values influence our behaviors within the framework. And that one without the other is rote or mechanical Scrum, which puts you directly down the path of these anti-patterns or, or bad Scrum, or as Ron Jeffrey calls it, dark Scrum, or as the Liberators in the Netherlands, they call it zombie Scrum. You know, whatever you want to call it, the framework in a mechanical me can run in a mechanical way in the absence of the scrum values puts you down that path and Todd and I just call it bad scrum so maybe we'll just use that what you are leading up to is also that if the entire organization has to be part of this scrum process or scrum mindset you know what kind of things that you have seen that the would make scrum more palatable or more easier for them to start participating you know, I'm going to go back to the Scrum Master. Like, I'm really locked in on this role lately. And 
I, I think, first of all, as an organization, let's empower scrum masters to go out into the organizations and coach. And I think far too many times we tell the scrum master, hey, stay in your lane, just work with the team, work with the dev team, work with the product owner, leave the org alone. And that's a misunderstanding of the role. You know, the scrum master, it, if you are in a scrum shop and you have agile coaches, that might be an anti-pattern because a fully empowered scrum master is out in the organization coaching. So I think first and foremost, let's get that scrum master out in the organization working with finance and legal and HR and getting those, those groups up to speed on what's expected. But I also think scrum masters have to use business terms. Like I, I think I mentioned in the beginning, I started as a developer, but when I went to college, I took, I, I have business degrees, right? I wanted to be able to speak to business, uh, to the business groups in a clean, concise you know, way so that I could, first of all, speak in terms that they care about, but also, you know, understand what, you know, the, the, the pressures of budgeting and the needs of stakeholders and the, you know, when, when you have a board of directors, that's, in, that's significance. And, you know, all those things from a business side, I wanted to understand them. But really, as a scrum master, what it helped me do was actually explain things in terms that matter to them. So if I'm working with a product organization, I'm not talking about, you know, scrum masters and sprints. And, and I'm, what I'm going to and saying is, look, we're going to work in a way or we, we, we actually we want to invite you to join us to work in a way to where we're gonna stay laser focused and aligned with the customer. We're gonna make sure we're building the right thing at the right time. We're gonna make sure that the investment that you're making, the money of yours that we're spending is being used in the best possible way to meet the need for a customer uh, that's minimal but sufficient, that delights them, that that leads to the biggest bang for the buck, the best revenue. And we have these, these practices, we have these events, we have this framework in place that's gonna help us make sure we're aligned to that along the way. Does that sound good to you? And I've never met a product owner when they've been approached like that who have said no. In fact, they say, please do this because we're not sure if we're actually delivering value in the first place. What comes to mind is usually one of the most challenging areas, at least in my experience, is engineering managers who feel uh, displaced. They don't really understand their role in the scrum world. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how you address that kind of resistance that comes and trying to bypass the backlog and all those kinds of behaviors I'm sure you've seen. Yeah. So I, I think when we see middle management, especially um, acting out in interesting ways, it, it's very easy to get on the anti-management bandwagon. And in our book, Todd and I are very clear. Management is to be respected. They have needs that we as a scrum team uh, that we have to meet. Um, we need to work with them very closely, very patiently. You know, for better or for worse, the word manager does not show up in the Scrum Guide. And so we've actually painted a, a picture of a future world where these people do not see a place for themselves. And that often leads to um, some of these behaviors that we see. So having just empathy for the fact that there's not a, a clear picture for what they do in the current literature, I think that's important. Now, in our chapter, we're very clear with Scrum Masters, look, these people are very bright. They've earned their positions. They are after good outcomes. They're trying to serve customers and do the right things for in the ways that they think are best. So we are we in no way look down on them, but we have to partner with them. We need to figure out what they want to get out of this, this whole situation. We need to figure out how um, to keep them engaged, but we also need to, to help them understand that, you know, management is essential to Scrum. You know, the management team sets the boundaries and constraints and rules that a dev team works within. You know, yes, it's very true that the dev team decides how best to do their work, but leadership, management, you know, that whole layer 
they set the boundaries and constraints that self-organization happen within. If those boundaries and constraints are not set, the team you know, organizes towards chaos. And so these, these people are very essential. We also need management who's supportive of scrum teams in place to help remove the big organizational impediments that a dev team or a scrum master cannot handle on their own. And so there's still you know, vibrant, wonderful work for these people to do. It may not necessarily look like managing the work anymore, but it's definitely going to be in service to delivery. And in fact, if we can, as scrum masters, partner with these managers and say, look, we are trying to get more frequent delivery. We're trying to get more value out the door sooner. We're trying to make it so that your teams are not only productive, but actually getting validated value back. Um, is that valuable to you? Typically, they say yes. I think we lose management, though. You know, they read a blog post from a scrum master that says, you know, management's not needed anymore. And they just lose interest. I think first and foremost, it's a respect thing. And then partnering with them and saying, how can we serve you within the boundaries, constraints and needs of Scrum? And I think that tends to lead to a better relationship. It's one of the best answers I've ever heard to that question. <laughs> well, thank you. So Santos, you had uh, another question? I see the, uh, you know, the role of Scrum Master um, really is a liaison through this whole uh, framework. But uh, what I was also looking at is, uh, you know, what is the kinds of things that Scrum Master brings to the table so that the non-participatory people, other than the team, uh, what, what are your thoughts to get them uh, feel like, what's in it for me? And how does, I mean, what is your uh, view that Scrum Master can do to bring those people in and uh, make them uh, participate or be party to the whole mindset. Yeah, so these non-participatory these non-participants, like are are these people who are are who are checking out and who are refusing to use the framework or are these kind of like, you know, people out in the business who have interactions but they're not sure what that looks like? Like what kind of non-participants are we are we talking about here? It's like you described some of them, it's like they may be the director levels or Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, those, those, they feel, oh, you guys, IT, you do your scrum thing and just give me the results. So I, I think that relationship building, what kinds of things that you are uh, you know, giving guidance to the scrum master as to how yeah. can you bring those people in? Yeah, I, I think um, that's a very common pattern, right? It's, yeah, I'll, I'll just check in on things when it's done. And you know what? Let's go with that. Let, let's stop trying to fight these 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 wars or let, let's not let's pick the right hills to die on. Right. And I, I think that one is an easy one where we just say, look, yeah, we are going to show you exactly what we did in the sprint review. We would love for you to show up to ask your questions, to see some real customer feedback. But again, this this goes back to a, some serious anti patterns in teams that, you know, if your sprint review is just a demo, then directors aren't going to show up. They're going to be bored out of your minds or out of their minds. And, and rightly so. But if you're conducting a sprint review that is a collaborative working session between the scrum team and stakeholders and leadership and customers and and users and if we're having this this rich engagement where we're giving feedback you know multi-directionally right the dev team is able to talk to customers and users and leadership about what was hard and what went well and related to the product and and how how progress is going and then the customers can say yeah this new feature was great but this last one 
you know, it's kind of helpful, but if we did these things, it would be even better. And like, you know, let's talk about budgets and forecasts and possible release dates and really have these in-depth collaborative working sessions. They're so much more than a demo. Then you might see these directors suddenly engaged in these events and interested about the, the progress of the product and curious about what's possible next. And at the end, maybe we get this great product backlog um, done where, you know, some new ideas came in, we get them added to the backlog, we do some refinement, everyone's excited about the next sprint, they can't wait to get into planning. That to me is like, that's a vibrant scrum practice where, you know, leadership and management, and the directors and the non-participants that you're talking about, suddenly they're, they're almost inspired to be a part of it. But when we do these rote mechanical things that just bores everyone to tears, then they're like, yeah, go ahead and just, you know, give me the results when it's done, or yeah, I'll check in with you later. And you see, do you kind of see the difference there? Correct. Oh, correct. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I think just to take one step beyond, I think you have addressed that in your book about how does this scale in the sense when you have multiple teams going at it with the uh, know, scrum uh, iterations and uh, cadence, uh, where do you see uh, the logical areas of uh, you know, engagements with the stakeholders, with the business side, with the... Yeah. DevOps uh, or the operation side or finance side. So what what is your take on when it gets little, not just the one team, but multiple teams? Where where do you see that happening? And uh, uh, where does Scrum Master f um, play the role in there? Yeah, so, so Todd and I are pretty unapologetic about the fact that we really don't cover scaling to a degree. I think you're definitely right that that we, we've touched on it very, very lightly, but we really don't go into it in the book. And, and there's a re there's a I think there's a good reason why. I hope this is considered a good reason. You know, in the past 20 years, you know, Todd and I have either been thinking about or working within these teams or directing, or we, we've been in some role that's touched a scrum team in some way or another, whether it's from a scrum master, product owner, developer, some kind of leadership position, or even stakeholder. And we've yet to see, like, we've yet to see organizations get really good with just one or two teams. You know, it, it definitely happens. I shouldn't say that we haven't seen it. But it, it's not the common pattern. And so we're very reluctant to just to even jump into scaling because I think that's where a lot of companies want to go first without even learning, you know, the skills and the tool sets that it takes to be a scrum team. Like teamwork is a skill. And most teams in the world today are not actual teams. They're just a loosely associated group of people. Um, and so just teaching teamwork to one team is important and getting at the two or three. And so before we go too far into the scaling discussion, you know, Todd and I were very um, we were very intentional in the book about saying, let's get good with these skills and practices with just one or two, maybe three teams. And after a year, maybe, or maybe 18 months of really getting that, that well done, then let's start talking about these big scale things. But, but to answer your question more directly, the scrum master's life, I mean, we start seeing more scrum masters emerge as scaling happens. And so now, now we have communities of practice and Fortunately, scrum.org has a very nice scaling framework called Nexus. And the Nexus framework is actually not about going bigger, but it's about decoupling and becoming smaller. And it's really the only framework I've seen for scaling to where I'm actually like, I, I don't cringe. You know, I, I see so many of these frameworks where things get really big and programs get huge and the staff has to quadruple and I just, my head starts to hurt. You know, what I love about Nexus is it's still professional scrum, but now we're very, very laser focused on the handoffs and where we have this coupling and and how do we actually make teams more autonomous and and more self-organizing and I, I i think it's a good read the the nexus guide is on scrum.org it's a free read 
There's a really good book, The Nexus Framework, uh, that came out through the, the Scrum.org book series. If, if listeners are really adamant about digging into scaling, I think those are good places to start. That, that's where I was going in the sense that, you know, we, if we need to go to that level, because we have seen this in some of our, um, uh, I guess, consulting areas where I don't know, we had to prove to the rest of the organization with uh, like a showcase teams. Once they started working, then it created a pull and yep. it started scaling. So, yeah, intentionally scaling, uh, it's, it's like you can't push a row. Right. But I'll tell you what, I'll give you a freebie from the book, right? Something that Todd and I have seen so many times and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I talk about this almost everywhere I go now. Let's say we get that one scrum team stood up and they're doing well in your organization and they're starting to really slam out some really awesome product that customers love and they're getting in a good cadence and, and things are going how we want to see them, right? And far too many times companies will take those nine or 10 people and split them into 10 different teams, right? Build a team uh -huh. around one of those people. And I'm sitting there, you know, and it just makes, oh, I just, I start to lose my mind a little bit and I'll walk into these orgs and they'll show me how they broke apart this team. And the first question I ask is, why would you ever slaughter a unicorn? And, and exactly. you know, the executives <laughs> look at me like I'm kind of crazy. I'm like, no, this is a rare thing. You, you have a group of people who are engaged and they're inspired and they're delivering and they understand why they're doing their work and they have a great product owner and the scrum master is on, on point and the dev team's delivering quality. And, and it's just, why would you kill a unicorn? And uh, they usually, after that question, realize, oh, no, we need to get this team back together. But for those of you out there, once you get that one good team running, keep it together. Let other people kind of observe, let them platoon in and out. But please, please, please do not kill the unicorns in your organization. Yeah. And if that team becomes the evangelist, then it becomes, you know, it, it starts getting organically adopted because people see that teamwork. So, you know, it becomes a really easy or much uh, some of the barriers start coming down because they see it working. And within their organization, instead of somebody from outside saying you should do that. But I agree with you. Breaking that team is the last thing you want to do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. Great. I think this has been a, a great conversation again, uh, Ryan. Congratulations on the book. It's really awesome. Um, I will uh, put a link in the show notes uh, so people know how to get it. And if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so I'm I'm all over social media and things like that. So if you want to go to ryanripley.com, there's plenty of ways to reach out and contact me. Uh, at Ryan Ripley on Twitter, um, if you use the hashtag fixing your scrum, I'm more likely to see it. But if you have any questions about scrum, you want to hit me up on the hashtag and, and on Twitter at Ryan Ripley, um, I will answer. So that's either a promise or a, a warning. I'm not sure which, but um, but yeah, I... I can I can talk about this stuff forever. So people who want to reach out, do it. I'm also on LinkedIn, and you know, a quick Google search usually leads to a, a lot of different ways to get me as well. But RyanRipley.com is probably the most reliable, and then Twitter at RyanRipley. Well, we will be sending you a lot of questions now. <laughs> Excellent! I can't wait, and and I'll probably just reply with a link to the book. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, we are going to definitely. Uh, post the link to the book also in our uh, you know, podcast uh, information. So, yeah, this is this has been awesome. Uh, really appreciate your uh, time. I know you are on the uh, at least two hours ahead of us, so this is like an odd hour for you. 
Oh uh, no, I, I I appreciate the opportunity, guys. It's always it's great to to meet fellow podcasters in the agile space. It's great to you know finally talk to the people whose shows you've listened to. And so no, I I truly appreciate this. I hope your audience liked it. And uh, you know what you know what if you got value out of this, everybody hit the hit the fixing your your Scrum hashtag. Let us know. Be sure to tell Steve and, and Santosh thank you for for doing this. And because uh, I'll tell you what, guys, I I think. You know, podcasting is tricky. It takes a lot of time. We, it's almost a, it's a labor of love. And and I appreciate everything you guys do and that uh, you're, you're helping bring my ideas forward. And you know what? I can't I can't thank you guys enough. So just thank you for that. And uh, I hope people enjoyed this. I'm sure I'm they sure will. they will. You have you have so many valuable, I guess you are the thought leader. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Awesome. Thanks, thank Ryan. You. Bye, everyone. Bye bye.